1: and welcome to the Aurora Cannabis Inc. third quarter 2021 results conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. A question and answer session will follow the formal presentation. If anyone should require operator assistance during the conference, please press star zero on your telephone keypad. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to your host, Anand Krishnan, Vice President, Corporate Development and Investor Relations. Please go ahead.
2: Thank you, Hector, and good afternoon, everyone. And thank you for joining us for the Aurora Cannabis Third Quarter Fiscal 2021 Conference Call for the three months ended March 31st, 2021. This is being recorded today, Thursday, May 13th, 2021. With me today are Aurora's CEO, Miguel Martin, and CFO, Glenn Ibbett. After the close of markets today, Aurora issued a news release announcing our financial results for the fiscal third quarter. This news release and the accompanying financial statements and MD&A are available on our website or on our CEDAR and EDGAR profiles. In addition, you can find a Q3 supplemental information deck on our IR website. Listeners are reminded that certain matters discussed in today's conference call or answers that may be given to questions could constitute forward-looking statements that are subject to the risks and uncertainties related to the Aurora's future financial or business performance. Actual results could differ materially from those anticipated in these forward-looking statements. The risk factors that may affect results are detailed in Aurora's annual information form and other periodic filings and registration statements. These documents may be accessed via the CDAR and EDGAR databases. Since we are conducting today's call from our respective remote locations, there may be brief delays, crosstalk, or other minor, minor technical issues during this call. We thank you in advance for your patience and understanding. Following prepared remarks by Miguel and Glenn, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ensure we get to as many questions as possible, we ask the analysts to limit themselves to one question each. With that, I would like to turn the call over to Miguel. Please go ahead.
3: Thank you, Ananth, and good
4: afternoon. I would like to start with some brief thoughts on the quarter, including a discussion of our domestic and international medical businesses, and then I'll address our plans for the near-term challenges in the Canadian adult use business. Afterwards, Glenn will provide his financial review. Finally, I'll talk more broadly about strategy and why we believe that Aurora, as the largest Canadian pure-play cannabis LP in the market, has an incredible opportunity within the global cannabis space. I think it is clear from our results that Aurora benefits greatly from having built a diversified business across domestic medical, international medical, and adult-use recreational markets. This provides us with both stability and growth no matter how the global cannabinoids industry evolves. First, let me say by talking about our domestic medical cannabis business, which is on very solid ground. We're number one by revenue in Canada's medical market, which as you know is the largest federally regulated medical market in the world. And our estimated market share is nearly double that of our next largest competitor. Notably, our international medical business also thrived during the period demonstrating sequential growth even as many of our peers experience declines. It should be mentioned that both of these units exhibit approximately 60% gross margins. The domestic medical business is unique as it represents a direct-to-patient distribution model that is powered by sophisticated technology infrastructure, allowing for an end-to-end patient experience. This infrastructure covers patient querying, onboarding, medical consultation, straight through to prescription fulfillment. We are extremely proud of the investment in technology and infrastructure we've made to service the medical patient base, and it provides a tangible barrier to entry to the medical channel. In an adult use environment with low barriers to entry and provincial middlemen, adding a layer of cost and complexity, the Canadian Medical Channel's direct-to-patient model is a welcome, sustainable, high-margin diversification piece to Aurora's business. We believe we offer the most expansive product selection and a carefully curated portfolio to ensure wide coverage of patient conditions at a variety of price points. Under my leadership, Aurora will maintain its focus on providing unparalleled professional counseling and guidance to patients, looking for assistance in navigating medical cannabis alternative treatments. This high touch approach to the medical channel is unique and is not easily replicated in the adult use retail experience. Further, we continue to exhibit success leveraging these core capabilities from Canadian Medical into our growing international medical platform. We sold medical cannabis into 12 countries during this quarter, and the number of countries exploring medical cannabis continues to grow. We've shown that we can take the expertise we gained in Canadian medical and export that internationally. And we continue to believe that this expertise represents a key success factor for Aurora as new countries look at launching medical cannabis regimes. Companies with success operating in federally regulated medical systems like those governed by Health Canada or the German health ministry are going to be advantaged when new markets open up to federal regulations, typically first for medical, then for recreational adult use. It should not be overlooked by anyone that on April 20th, in response to a question from the journalist, the White House press secretary publicly confirmed that President Biden supports legalizing medical cannabis. In a country like the United States, under a federally regulated system, we would fully expect the FDA to have significant influence in the federal medical cannabis program. And we think Aurora is uniquely advantaged when that happens. We view our enviable positioning in medical cannabis as a tailwind that over time will translate into success on a global scale. Taking this point one step further, as of March 31st, Aurora was the second largest Canadian LP in terms of global cannabis sales, and a leader across multiple markets and segments. We have earned the credibility to pursue incremental M&A opportunities in Canada, the United States, and around the world in support of shareholder value creation. Still, consistent with our peers, the Canadian consumer business presented challenges during the quarter. In our view, these challenges were twofold. First, COVID-related lockdowns in key provinces made it more difficult for consumers to access products at retail despite curbside pickup and online ordering for delivery as available options. Additionally, COVID slowed construction and opening of newly licensed stores, which have been expected. Second, due to the volatile environment, all of the provincial distributors have become more attuned to managing their inventory to limit returns, rationalizing their SKUs, and focusing on profitability per SKU. However, it's undeniable that there exists great retailer interest in having a more premium-focused assortment and they are therefore taking a more creative approach to margin as it pertains to 2.0 products versus just low-cost flour. This of course plays well into our strategy, even if it will take more time than we initially thought. As we have seen in more mature markets, a strategy which centers on product quality, innovation, and manufacturing excellence is the best path forward for our adult use business. Our ability to build traction will be more achievable once the current COVID-related lockdowns ease, and provincial retail inventories are better aligned with product demand. Still, we are not simply waiting the process out in anticipation of normalization, followed by an eventual rebound. Instead, we are determined to continue pulling the levers that we can to reduce our cost structure and extract further efficiencies from our operations, and in doing so, position ourselves for sustainable cash flow generation. More specifically, we have ad- identified an additional 60 million to 80 million in annualized savings that are targeted primarily at our production costs, facility, and logistic expenses, and to a lesser extent, SG&A. These efficiencies are expected to be realized over the next 18 months, and I'd like to remind you that our previous efficiency initiatives were delivered on time and provide more savings than originally expected. These identified efficiencies are incremental to the approximately 300 million in annual savings already realized, and will enable us to meet our financial objectives while the Canadian adult use market normalizes, which may take a few quarters still. We anticipate that these expense reductions will not inhibit any of our strategic growth plans across our businesses or our current revenue opportunity, but they will help to reduce our cash burn, solidify our margins, and enhance our overall financial flexibility. To assist in the execution of our corporate plan, we have also hired two highly skilled individuals in the areas of operations and HR. Alex Miller and Lori Schick to our team as we announced this afternoon in our press release. I'm not going to read their respective bios, but I think it is clear that we believe Lori and Alex will have the requisite experiences and skill sets to positively impact all of our business segments. So to sum things up, our Canadian and international medical businesses are performing well and we maintain our confidence in the margin accretive initiatives we laid out on previous calls. Ultimately, we have both the plan and ability to pursue profitable growth opportunities and create a unique economic model that strikes the balance between where the industry is today and where it's going. This optimism is of course anchored by a healthy balance sheet that supports organic growth, as well as M&A on an opportunistic basis. Both will position Aurora for long-term shareholder value creation. Before I turn the call over to Glenn, I want to address one more item. As many of you know, when Aurora's founder stepped down in February of 2020, Michael Singer stepped up and took over the reins as interim CEO, in addition to his continuing role as executive chairman. We all owe Michael a huge debt of gratitude for his leadership during that time. Ron Funk was the lead independent director over that period and has proven to be a consistent and reliable voice in the boardroom for years. Michael would transition back to a more traditional board role and Ron will move to independent chairman effective immediately. We look forward to oversight from both of these
3: directors as well as the broader board as Aurora continues to grow and expand. With that, I'll turn it over to Glenn. Thanks, Miguel. And good afternoon, everyone. Please note that the figures I'll be reviewing are all in
5: Canadian dollars and can be found in the press release we issued this afternoon or in the Q3M DNA and financial statements filed today on CDAR and Edgar. I would also note that the comparative period for our analysis today is Q3 2020. We believe this represents the best measure of the company's transformation and improved performance. Where appropriate, I will also note the sequential period comparatives. For context regarding our Q3 financial results, I'd like to take a moment to remind you of the plan we outlined to you in December 2020 and February this year. Last quarter, we discussed a number of initiatives as part of our transformation of our consumer business. We talked about a focus on higher quality, higher margin products. So, we reduced Sky production to 25% of its previous run rate to allow for process and cultivation changes to strengthen, strengthen the flower standards there. A bit later, Miguel will speak to the success at Sky so far. But for now, I'll say that we are greatly encouraged by the significant improvement in quality performance at Sky, in fact, across all of our operations. The reduced run rate has resulted in under absorption of certain overhead costs at Sky which then flow through to impact our cost of goods and gross margin in the quarter. So, although it hurts our gross margin in the short term, it's clearly the right long-term shareholder value creation decision, as the improved quality results we're seeing from Sky should allow that facility to, to truly perform as a gem in this industry. In addition to allowing for the transformation of Sky into the higher quality cannabis facility, We noted that the significant reduction in production volume of Sky would allow us to align our overall production levels with demand. And we expected our sales to production ratio in Q3 to be in the 90% 90 range. In fact, in Q3, despite the challenges of the consumer business, we sold 93% of what we produced. We also discussed initiating targeted product returns in Q3 in order to open sales channels to premium product. We did this replacing older, lower-potency and pre-rolls with the new standards that Miguel well outlined, including SanRaf brands that deliver higher THC potency and a very nice terpene profile without exception. Of course, the product swaps did result in returns per million of $3.2 million, which impacted our Q3 net revenue and margin numbers. We also cleared all cannabis out of our network that did not meet the new specs for THC terpenes and quality aspects This action necessitated an inventory write down that impacted our reported Q3 gross margin before fair value adjustments by approximately $88 million. Now, all of these actions impact short term reported revenues and gross margins, but they provide a sturdy foundation to support higher margins and accelerating cash flows in the coming quarters. So now to actual Q3 results and I'll start with a few high level comments. Q3 2021 revenue demonstrated the importance of Aurora's diversified cannabis business. While the Canadian consumer business was being repositioned to a higher standard, and Aurora and the general consumer market faced COVID and market development headwinds, our leading medical businesses in Canada and Europe continue to perform exceptionally well delivering growth and high margin revenues. In brief, our Q3 net revenue, all of it from cannabis businesses, was $58.4 million excluding the product return provisions of 3.2 million. Our medical cannabis segment continued to accelerate, generating $36.4 million in sales, and our consumer cannabis business delivered $21.3 million in net revenue prior to the return provisions. Demonstrating the value of our diversified cannabis business, our overall average selling price for medical and consumer businesses combined rose to $5 per gram of dried flower an increase of 8% year-over-year and 12% sequentially. Adjusted gross margin before fair value adjustments on cannabis net revenue remains strong at 44%, compared to 43% in the comparative quarter. Excluding the short-term impacts of unabsorbed overheads at SKY and return provisions and the wholesale clear-out of low potency cannabis, our normalized Q3 adjusted gross margin is 54%. FGNA remained low and well controlled at $41.9 million excluding restructuring. So now let me dig a bit deeper into our Q3 financial results. Medical revenue was up 17 percent year over year primarily because of the strong performance in our international medical business which was up 134 percent year over year. And of course from the continued resilience of our leading Canadian medical business which has delivered stable revenues even in the face of challenges from the opening of the consumer market. Not only was medical revenue growth significant, but this segment also carries our highest margins, coming in at 59% in Q3. And this despite absorbing additional overheads from the reduced rent rate in Sky. Our broad European footprint continued to show its strength in the quarter, with Germany delivering revenue up 64% compared to the prior year, and the UK and Poland becoming Aurora's second and third largest international medical markets, respectively. I should note that while we did not recognize sales into Israel this quarter, we do expect further sales to Israel to resume in the near term as this market develops. We've been selling in Canadian and European medical markets for over four years, and have seen little to no price compression. Delivering over 60% of our revenues in Q3 and with exceptional and resilient margins, it's clear that our medical business is a key differentiator for Aurora and should be an important driver of future cash flow. Looking now at our consumer business, Aurora's Q3 revenue was $21.3 million before return provisions. This is down from Q3 2020 as we work through the plan to reposition our consumer business and weather the COVID headwinds that Miguel has described consumer margins were 21 percent compared to 28 percent in the prior year comparative quarter and this is mainly because of the company, company initiated increase in product return provisions and also because of the under absorbed overhead cost at sky adjusting for just the return provisions q 3 consumer gross margin would have been 33 percent thinking about the longer term profile of gross margins in our consumer business With the changes we've made to cultivation processing techniques and the successful introduction of new and unique cultivars coming from our breeding program and genetics bank, we can now produce a high PhD, high-terpene flower at Sky without materially increasing the cost to produce that flower. So, leaning hard into our expertise in science and cultivation to focus on premium flower production, we expect to see strengthening of our consumer margins over the next 12 to 18 months as we successfully pivot our consumer business to a greater proportion of premium product. I should also note in the quarter that we did take the opportunity to clear out about 3,000 kilograms of low potency flour at trim pricing. This product was at risk of being written off, so we elected instead to turn it into $760,000 in cash, but it did impact reported margins. Now to SGA, which includes R&D. We continue to operate at our targeted low $40 million range, coming in at $41.9 million in Q3. This excludes approximately $3.2 million of employee and contract termination costs related to our business transformation. Although we continue to deliver on the run rate that we previously targeted, as Miguel noted, we see a path to further improvement over the coming quarters. So, Pulling all of this together, we generated an adjusted EBITDA loss in C3 2021 of $16.7 million, and that's excluding revenue provisions restructuring. This represents a continued improvement from the $44.6 million adjusted EBITDA loss in the prior year comparative. It is a slightly larger loss than in the previous quarter. However, despite our overall net revenue being down $12.5 million from the previous quarter, The strength of our diversified business and solid margins of our medical business show in the fact that EBITDA was only impacted by about $4 million. So with the continued business transformation efficiencies we believe we can realize within the next 18 months, we are confident that we can get Aurora to positive EBITDA run rate without having to rely on revenue growth or margin expansion. That growth, when it comes, will show up as incremental positive earnings now a few important points regarding cash flow and cash position we used 35.9 million dollars of cash to fund operations excluding working capital and we used 5.4 million dollars for contract and employee termination costs we also paid a net 12.2 million dollars for capital expenditures in q3 down from 83.9 million dollars in the prior year comparatively. So, we're on track to reduce CapEx spending to approximately $41 million for this fiscal year. And that's before taking into account a further offset to come from an expected $9.4 million government grant to be received related to our cogeneration project completed at River. Net working capital used $25 million in the quarter. With production and demand now roughly aligned, This change in working capital was mainly due to shifts in the levels of accounts receivable and accounts payable, which we expect to settle out over time. Finally, as of today, we have a very strong cash position with about $525 million in the bank and less than $90 million of outstanding term debt. In the coming months, we expect to receive additional non-dilutive cash inflows from non-core asset sales and grants, which we plan to direct to term debt pay down. Before I wrap up, a couple of housekeeping notes. We received approval from NASDAQ to transfer our U.S. listing to the NASDAQ Global Select Market, the highest listing tier on the NASDAQ Exchange. This is expected to be effective on May 24th after the market closed and will not impact our TSX listing, nor the trading opportunity for any of our shareholders. No action is required from any Aurora shareholder. This transfer is intended to result in cost savings and to align Aurora with our peers on an exchange known for innovative and growth-oriented companies. We also announced today that we intend to file a new ATM supplement for a US $300 million program. We do not expect to need the ATM for our current business operations, but we do believe we need to be prepared for strategic acquisition opportunities, including US exposure, as we identify those opportunities. So to wrap up, What I believe people really need to take away from our Q3 financial results is the following. Aurora's financial health and path to growth and profitability are on track. We have had great success in in our high margin medical businesses and the transformation of our consumer business that while facing industry headwinds which may take some time to pass is well underway. We've also taken important steps in rationalizing production. SG&A remains well controlled and we reiterate our focus on cash flow and on maintaining a strong balance sheet. I'd now like to turn the call back over to Miguel.
3: Thanks, Glenn. As I
4: referenced earlier, Aurora's underlying strength is that we are a diversified business that can be broken down into four parts. First, a Canadian medical business, number one, in fact. Two, an international medical business. Three, a U.S. CBD business. And four, finally, our Canadian adult rec use business. The latter is clearly facing some near-term COVID-related headwinds, but we're confident that when these conditions abate, we will have a strong business across all four key platforms. Although we are already the number one medical cannabis company in Canada by revenue, we still believe that we have significant growth still ahead. First, I'd like to highlight that the top five LPs in the Canadian medical channel represent less than 40% of the market, with Aurora being roughly half of that. This means that there are plenty of LPs out there that make up 60% of the medical market. That is a lot of potential for us to grow into. Second, there are further opportunities to leverage technology in our patient intake and user experience to lower wait times, improve service levels, and increase product choices. We have made the requisite investments in infrastructure, have the necessary regulatory experience, and compliance systems that effectively create a moat around our business of supporting key patient groups while enabling us to sustain approximately 60% gross margins for the foreseeable future. Our national medical segment generates revenue across 12 countries and has been a consistent winner. We have a leading position in Germany and dried flower, but are also bullish on the large and growing oil market there. Additionally, we have made inroads in Israel through a strategic supply agreement with Cantech. We are also involved in the French medical cannabis tender program
3: with our partner
4: EpiPharm, where we won three of the nine tenders, representing all of the dried flower tenders awarded, to supply the French medical pilot program. As you know, Senator Chuck Schumer said to the Senate floor that 420 is the unofficial American marijuana holiday, and that he now supports legalizing cannabis on a national level. As I referenced before, on that same day, the White House Press Secretary was asked this very question and replied that while the President supports leaving decisions regarding legalization for recreational use up to the states. At the federal level, he supports decriminalizing cannabis use, automatically expunging any prior criminal records, and legalizing medical cannabis. In a federally regulated medical framework, I feel confident about Aurora's chances for success. We, of course, do not know the timeframe for if or when this will happen, but I can say with certainty that Aurora's ability to operate within a highly regulated framework, supported by our commitment to science, testing, labeling and EU-GMP compliant cultivation puts us in an enviable position to actualize this likely opportunity. That's not to say the MSOs don't have their own advantages, but Canadian LPs like Aurora, that have been successful around the world, have the wherewithal and experience to be successful in the U.S. as well. Turning to our U.S. CBD segment, Oliva is the top-ranked CBD brand per Nielsen and the largest candidate market in the world. We are supplying some of the largest retailers and wholesalers nationally and have a footprint spanning over 23,000 stores. We've also recently extended our product line with a new brand focused on the sports market, and that will launch on shelves this quarter. In the near term, we think this new distribution would offset softness related to COVID disruption affecting the USC store channel. However, long-term, we believe that the single greatest sales catalyst for Reliva going forward, given its already established critical distribution, regulatory experience, and relationships in the U.S. market is FDA regulation and the potential placement of CBD within a dietary supplement framework. So whether the U.S. CBD business is a CAD 2 billion or a CAD 10 billion a year over time, we believe that reli will be advantaged under FDA protocols because of our regulatory expertise operating in brick and mortar stores, even in the age of e-commerce. Let me also add that we would not be surprised the non-THC parts of our portfolio and are ultimately as big as the THC parts of our portfolio, particularly with positive FDA action in the US. Moving on to the Canadian consumer market, our three-step approach to winning is as follows. First, we've made significant investments improving the quality of our products. This includes the addition of hand trimming, hand-drying techniques, and innovative packaging. Importantly, we have also improved the minimum potency specs of our two largest brands, Today, our daily special dried flower has a minimum 20% potency, up from 16%, and we've increased both potency and terpenes on some of our best-selling SANRAP SKUs. Secondly, leading with innovation, we continue to make increased investments that meet the rapidly evolving needs of our consumers. Over the last six months, new product launches have accounted for over 18% of total revenue, and we are excited about new launches throughout the Generation 2 and 3 categories over time and third optimizing our manufacturing and production network this includes leveraging third parties as needed across our supply chain to increase speed to market the ramp up of aurora nordic to streamline eu gmp shipments to our key european medical business and the closing of inefficient cultivation and manufacturing facilities. we are now going even further with today's efficiency initiatives to reduce complexity in our operations we like our top line strategy, which we believe is appropriate for the current and future state market. To accelerate our progress, we have a new head of marketing and a new head of brand management to lead these initiatives. They'll be working closely with the team at Great North Distributors, our new contract sales force, who is the number one national broker for cannabis in Canada. Before we wrap up, I wanna take a moment to talk about our strategy to commercialize our deep intellectual property and science program. The production and isolation of cannabinoid molecules is a topic that generates a tremendous amount of airtime, particularly as it relates to biosynthesis. We believe the use of the cannabinoid molecules, including, including minor cannabinoids, will be huge as the regulations globally evolve. In fact, our Oliva business in the US, USA Today sells products to consumers that use CBD isolate, and we are deeply interested in the evolution of other cannabinoids and the ability to commercialize them. With this, it is important to highlight to our stakeholders Aurora's connection to the biosynthetic production of cannabinoids, which goes back to the work carried out by our plant science team on the discovery of plant pathways and licenses for this IP was brought to Aurora through the acquisition of Anandria. Through licensing deals, Aurora and 22nd Century Group together share the global intellectual property rights to key aspects of cannabinoid biosynthesis.
3: The two companies
4: are working closely together to both defend our position on this IP from parties infringing on it, as well as actively exploring commercial development opportunities. This technology promises to be tremendously valuable as it potentially unlocks more efficient means to produce cannabinoids, particularly minor cannabinoids, which typically occur in the plant at very low levels, less than 1%. Let me end with this. Since first announcing our business transformation about a year ago, we've accomplished a great deal. Specifically, we said that we would cut G&A and delivered 60 plus million in quarterly SG&A savings. We said we would align our production to current demand. We delivered that in Q3 with a sales to production ratio of 93%. We said we would leverage external expertise in our supply chain. We've achieved that with multiple external cultivation sources onboarded and bringing in the Great North contract sales force. The upshot of all these initiatives, plus the new expense reductions announced today will enable us to reach breakeven EBITDA in the coming quarters without having to depend on incremental revenue. Thank you for your interest, and now we'll turn it over to the operator for questions. Operator?
1: Thank you. At this time, we'll be conducting a question and answer session. If you'd like to ask a question, please press star one on your telephone keypad. A confirmation tone will indicate your line is in a question queue. You may press star two if you'd like to remove your question from the queue. As a reminder, please limit to one question per caller. If you have additional questions, please re enter the queue. For participants using speaker equipment, it may be necessary to pick up your handset before pressing the star keys. One moment, please, while we poll for questions.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
3: Your first
1: question comes from the line of Vivian Aver with Cowan. Please proceed with your question.
0: Hi, how are you?
3: Good afternoon, Deb
0: good afternoon um so my question has to do with the competitive dynamic in the adult use market in canada so well understood covid shutdowns all of the store opening delays all challenging for for you and your peers to be sure and then uniquely perhaps a little bit more for you guys the the comp issue in terms of the 2.0 rollout so i think a lot of peers were doing that and um the introduction of daily special All, all of that aside though um you know there's a difference between revenue declines and changes in market share. And so mm-hmm. what I'm curious to understand, Miguel, is your perspective on the competitive landscape. Because it looks like in the high fire data, which obviously doesn't include Quebec, um, you know, there was sequential degradation um, in your market share. And when I look at kind of the, the top operators in aggregate, you know, this year versus last year, it just seems like across the board, it is smaller operators that are picking up share, presumably, you know. Later entrance into the market. So, kind of, how are you thinking about the balance of um, you know benefits of being a first mover versus you know the way you have to compete against you know smaller second movers who are displacing market share. Long-winded question, but thank you.
4: Great. Well, it's a it's a great question. Let, let me just address the sort of macro issues that everybody faces because I think it's you know COVID is you know the the sort of the top line answer, but I think everyone also has to understand this you had the provinces which act as wholesalers making massive cuts to their days on hand as they reacted. So that's sort of a one-time impact. And we're talking about seven and eight figure pieces. We're also seeing provinces that had a massive, you know, reduction in, in terms of new SKUs that they allowed to be brought to the market. So just to say that, you know, curbside delivery and stores not opening, that that's only a portion of the revenue story. And I would say, you know, that is a, a bit of timing in, in a lot of different ways. Now, Vivian, your, your question about market dynamics, let, let me take it in two directions. So, first and foremost, it, it is a very diluted market compared to what, you know, I'm used to and maybe what you're used to, where you have the top five LPs controlling 80 90%, you know, of a given category. You don't see that in the cannabis business in Canada today. Um, so, that's first. You may see top five Companies you know, representing 40, maybe 45% of a, of a key category, dried flower, pre-roll, vape, um, you know, things like that. Secondly, you know, as everyone well knows, market share in isolation is, is really not a good bellwether. You're seeing a lot of market share picked up um, you know, by value products and deep discount products, and those margins are way lower than what we're seeing from a premium standpoint. I would say that you're starting to see the early days of uh, premium products start to take hold. Um, we've seen it a little bit. You've also seen some others. You're also really seeing an acceleration of Gen 2 and Gen 3 products in Canada. So, if you look over like the last 12 months, flour might be up 30 to 40%. Um, if you look at you know, everything else, it might be up you know, three times that. And I think everyone understands that there was a delay in the Canadian market with those Gen 2 and Gen 3 products. So when you think about concentrates and vapor and pre-rolls, those are gonna have higher margins regardless of um, that. Lastly, you know I, I think a lot of these competitive dynamics are a bit temporary. Um, there is, as you've seen, a glut of what I would describe as you know, low-cost flour you know, in the market and that's causing some irrational pricing. I, I do believe, having talked to the provinces and talking to the retailers, there is an interest in holding margins up and people actually making money. Maybe it's taking a little bit longer than people would have wanted because of, you know, just the, the situation we're in with COVID. And then I guess lastly, you know, being I mean, to be respectful of your question about our market share, I, I think, you know, to be brutally honest, it's taking a little bit longer than I would hope. And so let me talk a little bit about that. We had to make, you know, as Glenn mentioned, and I talked a bit about massive changes to the quality of our products. And unlike other CPG, you know, items, you can't just snap your fingers and flush wholesale, flush retail. So we had to do the provision you saw at 3.2. It takes a while to get that out of retail and get that, you know, in the system. But I think the changes that we've made across the board on potency and with new items is encouraging. I think G&D and retail coverage is really, a, you know, not talked about a lot. Just as one data point for you, um, from our data, we see that the number one SKU, which I won't say what it is in Canada, um, in terms of in stock is around 60%. So, that one SKU is only in 60% of the stores. That's an abysmally low number in any sort of traditional CPG. We think someone like GND that can make three times the number of calls for us, has great data systems, has national coverage, will be really strong on the blocking and tackling. So, while we're not ha- I'm not happy with the timing of it, you know, we're definitely going to see improvements, but that really goes to the strength of the other parts of our business, um, which are way steadier and have way
3: less compression um, and, you know, provide a lot of opportunities. Your next question comes from a
1: line of Pablo Zwanik with Cancer Fitzgerald. Please proceed with your question.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Miguel, can I just ask, in, in maybe following up on the re, on the last question? Uh, talk about the relationships of Aurora with the boards and with the consumer. You know, because of all these issues, have those relationships been hurt with the boards, with the retailers, and and what about the brands? You know, have the brands suffer in uh, as a result of what's going on? And I'm asking that in the context of a company that's that's losing share, right? If you can comment on that, thanks.
4: Pa- Pablo, when you mean the boards, you mean the provincial boards?
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there's like three parties to a story, right? Your relationship with the boards, your relationship with the retailers, the stores, and then, you know, the relationship with the consumer in terms of your brands. Because what I'm I'm surprised is that we see all these new little companies being able to list uh, new SKUs with the boards uh, at a time that they are cutting SKUs, right? So it just makes you wonder.
4: Thanks. Okay. You're very welcome. So let me see if I can take those in, you know, in three parts. So obviously the provincial boards, you know, operate as the wholesaler. I would say you know they are evolving and and I've got a tremendous amount of respect you know for the provincial boards I mean remember this thing's only three years old they're trying to you know do everything they're trying to do in the midst of COVID and so I think Pablo we have a good relationship with them I think you know in all cases you always can have it be better they really don't play favorites Um, so you know whether you're a small manufacturer or a large manufacturer you have uh, the same opportunity now what is evolving which I think will benefit a company like Aurora particularly with my background is you're now seeing you know very sort of sophisticated CPG and in many cases the decision-makers are coming from you know the beverage side so you know scoring manufacturers on fill rates in stock conditions shipping provisions Um, you know, all of those core things are going to start to make a difference in terms of what SKUs they take, how they fill them, um, how those, you know, put out to the retailers. And we're spending a lot of time and effort on that. So, I know right now it just seems like a free-for-all in terms of everybody's treated the same. I think that's definitely, you know, changing. Also, we are hearing from the provincial boards that they are, you know, concerned about price compression and starting to put some floors in on key segments, whether that's a a 3.5-gram flour or a 28-gram. And I think that also benefits, you know, bigger pieces. Now, in terms of the retailers, you know, it's an interesting market. Um, I'm used to, and I think most are, you know, a chain business, a significant amount of chain or, you know, centrally controlled stores. And we don't have that today in Canada, albeit there are, you know, some smaller chains out there, you know, say that may number 80 to 100, which is not insignificant. And they are also becoming more sophisticated, which is raising the overall um, game for us. I think D gives us an advantage because of the importance in call coverage, particularly post-COVID, and we're developing, you know, a series of connected events. Now, there is a ban on inducements, which you well know, that restricts a manufacturer from, a, say, a traditional CPG alignment program. But, again, you know, they're looking for profitability. And when I mentioned before that the number one SKU in the country is only 60% in stock, there's a ton of upside to blocking and tackling, you know, why, which is why we've made significant investments in our retail infrastructure. And so I think that's all, you know, going to evolve and, and be in a better place. And I think, lastly, you know, your point to the consumers is an important one. You know, today, um, you know, we really had to step up our game in terms of quality. I will say, though, unlike, you know, other mature categories that you all folks cover, we're seeing, say, in the flower business, you know, 200 basis points, 300 basis points, swing in a week. We're seeing in vapor 400 basis points. So the consumer is moving around and is respecting, you know, quality and value in terms of what they get as well as innovation and we are seeing a significant amount of receptivity to new items you know like concentrates and hash and rosins and resins and that i think will benefit a company you know like aurora that's made significant investments in there and so you know i, I think in aggregate what you're seeing here is not going to be the future state i would expect that you start to see you know more traditional trends where the top 5 lps in a category do you know, 60 70%, you're seeing in-stocks in the 80s and 90s, you're seeing national execution, and you're seeing a more consistent brand experience, even though there'll always be a,
3: a place, you know, for a, a regional brand, I just don't think it's at the level it's at today.
1: Your next question comes from line of David Kadeckel with ATB Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question.
2: Hi guys, uh, this is actually Frederico, Frederick i in for Dave. Uh, thanks for for taking my question. So uh, we've seen a uh, M&A activity has really taken off here in Canada. I'm just wondering how do you guys see that environment? You know, what's your game plan there? Uh, are you looking at anything M&A wise in Canada or maybe do you have other plans? And uh, so so that's not, not in the US, I mean specifically for Canada.
4: So, you know, Frederico, it's an interesting question. Obviously, there's been some notable, you know, acquisitions of late. I think the way I would describe it is this, without getting any specific details. We don't see anything in Canada that we got to have. Given the dynamic nature of market share, buying or renting market share, I think, right now, is not a great play, you know, in Canada. Now, that being said, if we saw something that was accretive, you know, a technology, um, you know, a management team or something that was in a category that we didn't need, then then maybe be of interest. I think as many of you know, Aurora, had, you know, was on an absolute tear in terms of acquisition in the early days. And so whether it's India as a lab or Coast and Comox in terms of IP and technology or manufacturing, we've got, you know, plenty of infrastructure um, and, and had plenty of, you know, acquisitions in order to fill it out. I think, you know, given our strength in medical and international medical and, and you know, with a little bit of softness in rec, we're going to focus in there, but I don't think you're going to see us chase, um, you know, in Canada in order to what I would really describe as renting market share unless that there was a systemic or sustainable reason in order to add that to the portfolio. Clearly, if we, we needed to do it, you know, through the you know,
3: $525 million with a $300 million ATM, we'd be in a position to do it if we saw it. So, that's how I would describe it, Frederico.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Michael Lavery with Piper Sandler. Please proceed with your
3: question. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. You um, you laid out some good color on the, the cost savings initiatives uh,
5: that that you've got mapped out. And I guess I just want to maybe make sure I understand how to think about that in terms of gross versus net. And, and by that, I mean, you also touched on some things like the um, high-touch approach on the medical side, it sounds like increasingly so, and, um, you know, some of the things like hand trim um, it, Should we expect a 60 to 80 net number to flow through, or, or is there going to be some, uh, I guess, maybe reinvestment that that,
4: that that'll fund as well? I would tell you, Michael, we feel confident that we're going to be able to deliver that 60 to 80 million, you know, straight up in efficiencies. I mean, you know, if you sort of unpack that, we've got the Nordic facility we've talked about in the past uh, that, you know, is now producing EU GMP products for, you know, Europe and, and for Israel. So that creates some redundancies. We've seen some efficiencies in, in our current business, obviously, right-sizing the overall infrastructure. Um, for the business we have today, as well as a little bit, you know, going forward means we have redundancies and efficiency. So I would tell you, you know, from my point of view, the company has had a strong track record of when they say they're going to see straight up savings. And I expect this to be no different. And it's my expectation that we'll deliver the 60 to 80 in that 18 month period. Um, and with that, as, as you know, we don't need to grow
3: our way into EBITDA neutral um, or have to have to see anything happen on the margin. So, I, I take it as is. Did that answer your question, Michael? Your next question comes from the line okay. of Heather Bowski with Bank of America. Please proceed
1: with
0: your question. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, I, I'm curious about your your thoughts around your balance sheet and, and cash, and, and also the comment in your press release about uh, your cost savings getting you I guess um moving cash flow metric in a positive direction. Um I guess how are you thinking about the timing of getting to cash flow positive um in this environment, maybe if the environment improves? And and also how do you feel about the cash on your balance sheet, especially as we hopefully inch closer to federal legalization in the US?
3: Glenn, you wanna kick that one off? Yeah. Yeah, thanks Heather.
5: Um so listen, yeah, a if you, if you uh a few things to unpack there certainly um what miguel outlined in terms of operational cost savings we think is a big part of that if we look at q3 and we look where the you know where the cash was consumed there there was some uh, still being consumed in operations so we're not there yet on operations but we believe that if we can achieve these cost savings and so that equates to maybe 15 to 20 million dollars a quarter and you think of our ebitda minus 16 or 17 this quarter that gets a long ways towards your your positive cash flow from operations. Um, working capital was a bit of an anomaly this quarter and we, we, there was a $24 million receivable that we collected just into April. So let's just say we collected that during the course of, of March, we would have seen this single-digit investment working capital. So we think with production and demand roughly aligns that our working capital should kind of stabilize and, and start to even out a little bit. It, it, um, so let's just Say long term, there'll be a little bit of investment investment work in working capital as we grow, but but we think we've we've got that well under control. And certainly, as we manage our inventory tightly now, um, that that should be fine. And finally, you know, the capex piece of this, uh, you know, we talked about how much we've we've reduced that. I mean, it's, I know you're relatively new to our story, but you've done your homework. You know what we were spending in capex a year ago. You know where we're at now, and we think we've got most of our projects complete. So. Even going forward, there, you know, we spent 40 million bucks, or you know, we're on track to spend 40 million bucks this fiscal year, and I don't see us, you know, that, that's that's the top end for next year if that. So, so you know, the pieces are in place, and really, what we want to do is execute on these cost reductions in operations and STN just in, in the way that Miguel described it over the next uh, number of quarters uh, to to make sure that we've got a plan to get us there without having to depend on revenue growth. When we say that, by no means do we you know want to want to impart that we don't expect revenue growth? absolutely. our our, our international medical business continues to thrive uh, plans in Canadian uh, medical to to grow, as Miguel outlined. And we believe that we've put the pieces in place to get consumer back on track. So we do expect growth, but we want to make sure that we pull the levers, as we've talked about in the past to to get us to at least a break even on EBITDA cash flow uh without depending on that growth so presumably when the growth shows up it shows up as, as incremental earnings and cash flow so that's the plan that's how we think about how we're going to get there over the next uh, you know 12 to 18 months is on the back of
3: continued rationalization of costs and then picking up additional cash flows we see growth thanks
1: the next question comes from the line of matt mcginley with Needham and company please proceed with your question
3: thank you my
2: question is on, on what changes about the financial performance in the fourth quarter versus the third you know growth in the consumer business seems pretty contingent upon COVID disruptions normalizing but you'd only have about a month and a half to make up for any lost ground before the quarter ends and you know obviously the the rationalization won't really have an impact I think on the on the fourth quarter so should we expect improvements
3: of the in the fourth quarter or should we Think think of this more as like 2022 before we we would expect to see improvements. Glenn, you want to, you want to I add? Mean, I, I guess here's yeah. what I'd say on on that. You know, the we're on the
4: rec side. The trends are what the trends are, but we also have positive trends on on different sides of the business. I don't want to get get ahead and give guidance in, in the midst of the quarter. I think you know you sort of heard what we're saying. There are other pieces that also are steady. There's other pieces on the cost side, so. You know, I, I'm sorry I can't give the exact answer you want, but I think when you look at the aggregate of where the business was going from the point in time in which, you know, we laid out for you, plus some other pieces there, you know, I, I think, you know, that sort of is what it is. I, it's hard, you know, when I talk about the provinces making a change, you know, of eight figures on POs, I, I really don't want to get ahead of myself in terms of what happens on that side of it. Um, you know, and then on
3: the you know the medical and the international side, those you know those trends have been pretty steady. So I, I think I'd put, sort of leave it there. Want anything you want can to add to that? No, I, it's, that's fine. We don't.
5: We we recognize, as you just described, the consumer market. The you know we're doing what we can, but there there are things that are kind of dynamics to the market right now and we've seen over the last, uh, you know, quarter that the, you know, provinces are adjusting on the fly as well. So we uh will uh, uh focus on the, you know, the plan we've laid out which is,
3: you know, over the next number of quarters and, and continue to just uh, look for improvement each quarter.
1: Your next question comes from line of Tammy Chen with BMO Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question.
6: Hi, thanks for the question. Um uh Miguel, I wanted to ask a bit more on, um, you know, the, the production pivot and all the changes you've made at Sky. So, if we just um, move aside all the COVID headwinds, because I think that's pretty been well highlighted, that that definitely made things very difficult for you guys um, on the premium uh, pivot strategy. So, if we just move that to the side here, could you speak a bit to... Um, the consistency now at which Sky can produce that high quality flour, because one of the things we keep hearing COVID headwinds aside is that in the market right now, there's a lot of the average quality stuff, but there's, there's not enough of the high quality stuff. And I just would have thought that, that sort of dynamic, once again, COVID aside, would have been that perfect sort of opportunity for um, your strategy of trying to tackle that apparent white space. So can you talk a bit about the production consistency? Because I'm also just thinking about your ability, right, to um, tackle that white space and also the implications on, you know, inventory, uh, possible impairment going forward. I know you did this big inventory right down this quarter, but I really want to understand the, the level of consistency you can hit at in terms of, the higher potency and all the thresholds that are required for premium flower. Thanks.
4: Sure. It's a great question, Tammy. So, you know, let, let me go back a little bit. First and foremost, a year ago, the market was one in which you could have sold 16, percent potency with a low two-level TURP, um, bud quality, moisture, none of, you know, TURP, you know, other aspects from quality were not that as important. And at that time, as everybody knows you know sky was hammering out a lot of products um, some of that was for daily specials some of that was for some other things and the consumer as is in the case in every other market has moved really quickly today you know as an example if you look at the wholesale market you can access 19 potency product maybe 20 potency product anything above that is really hard to find and you can sell all day long 22 23 potency products in the retail market. It is a hard thing to make. If it was easy, everybody would be making it, the flower market and pricing would, would be great, but it's a hard thing to do, so we had to pivot Sky. Now, I'll talk about Sky in one second, but I don't want anyone to lose sight of the fact that we also have other really you know consistent, high-quality um, manufacturing facilities, River, Ridge, Whistler, the organic in, you know, in-soil production facility in the west coast in D.C., and they've been very consistent. And so, Tammy, to your question about Sky, we've been working on Sky. As you know, we announced we took it down to 25%, and it is a you know, still working through it. Some of the early reads coming out of there are encouraging, but you have to be able to cycle through and be able to see the totality of what you're going to get out of Sky. And to Glenn's point, it was painful in order to apply those fixed costs across the whole system to ascertain what we can get. We're close to understanding what we have with Sky. The good news for us though, is we have redundancies in our overall infrastructure. And now that we have Nordic, we don't need to produce EU GMP domestically in Canada. So we have options regardless of what happens with that Sky project um, in order to delivering 22, 23 potency product at enough retail value and importantly at a cost structure that is right-sized for the environment, you know, that we're in. Um, So I think, you know, a little bit to follow on that. We expect to give you an update coming soon. But either way it goes, it's not like we don't have an option because of the historical production out of River Ridge and Whistler, which are not at 100% in terms of their overall utilization. And that's why, you know, when we
3: talk about, you know, aspects of the redundancy, that's not the only one, but it is one of them.
1: Your next question comes from the line of John Zamparo with CIBC.
3: Please proceed with your question.
1: Thanks. Good evening. Um, Miguel, Good evening. I, I wanted to follow up on, on a comment you made. Um, you referenced one competitor's skew and what percent of retail is that. I'm not sure if this is a number you, you have handy or, or are willing to share, and if not, maybe you can just talk directionally. But I'm curious about how you look at your distribution and how many stores you're in countrywide and how that's trended over the past, let's say, year or couple quarters. Thank you.
3: So,
4: John, um, I come from a, a world of incredible analytics. You know, uh, 242,000 stores. I get wholesale. I had wholesale shipments weekly by SKU, both my business and competitive business. I had in-stock conditions. I had retail takeaway. I, I, you know, we had it all. Um, in Canada, that information is just starting to come online. You see it with some of the retail information, um, the provinces are starting to get there. It was one of the core reasons why we went with Great North and their you know, significant CRM systems. So what we are now, and you can imagine, you can't just snap your fingers and get it. We are visiting uh, the roughly 1,540 or 1,600 stores that are open and are selling cannabis. We're visiting all of them on a monthly basis. We'll visit the you know higher volume stores, which account for anywhere between 70 to 75 percent of the business, twice a month. And we're starting to gather the following information, which I know is going to seem mundane and basic um, to all of you, but is the beginning blocks of where the cannabis industry is. First is overall distribution. Say most commonly sold you know, 46 to 50 SKUs. Secondly is pricing, um, both wholesale to retail and retail to consumer. Third would be in-stock conditions, which in Canada come in two ways. One, what is authorized or listed, which potentially can go to the store. And then secondly, what is physically in the location. And as you can imagine with the speed, you know, that's why those weekly calls matter. Um, you know, and then, you know, nice to have would be timing, you know, of new brand launches and signage and, you know, share of space. So, that information that I quoted to you is an internal piece of information and is not widely available because even the large chains who, you know, do have sophisticated data systems, that doesn't encompass the independence um, where a lot of business is done and therefore the value of that you know, overall uh, retail takeaway data or CRM data. So, you know, I I think there's a ton of upside um, in that as a manufacturer. The other upside is for the retailers who in many cases, you know, are not, you know, haven't been in this business, you know, for a long time because they couldn't have. And so us providing, you know, category insights um, and profitability optimization for new stores and existing stores is a big opportunity. And I think, you know, all that, I'm sure it sounds like the basics for any CPG company, but it's really where we're at and I think it will be wildly additive for Aurora um, as we leverage that uh, data and insights with our retail and provincial partners, which, you know, suit uh, the consumer needs.
1: Your next question comes from the line of John Chu with Desjardins Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question.
2: Hi, good afternoon. So... Maybe just talking on the, the Canadian medical and the European market, you're doing really well on both those fronts. But I guess I find those two markets maybe kind of small and, and it's just a little bit underwhelming at this point in time. So if you can just maybe give a bit more color in terms of the market size, the market potential. I think the Canadian med market is maybe about a 10th of the Canadian rec market, if, if you can give me some indications otherwise. And then maybe just the outlook for Europe, because right now just the, the growth we've seen so far has been, been pretty underwhelming. So maybe just talk about those two markets in general. Thanks.
4: Yeah, I mean, John, it's it, you know, I find it. Um, I understand exactly the sentiment, but I think if, if you have to look at the broader picture of medical, so we represent roughly 19% of the Canadian medical business. As I mentioned, our next closest is uh, half that. Um, there's a ton of upside. We also see a movement from unions and, and benefits and, and carriers. So we believe that there is an upside to medical. The other part of medical is the margins are steady and really solid at 60%. Internationally, it's a great business. And what we see is whether you're dealing with Germany or France or UK, it's a really high bar to get into. And so there's a deep moat around it and there's a lot of expansion. I think the reason to be interested in medical would be, you know, probably threefold. One is, it's going to continue to grow, and the same people that are winning today are going to win tomorrow, and it is really significant from a margin standpoint. Secondly, is, you know, medical typically is the pathway forward on REC, and it is the same regulators, and you have tremendous efficiencies in manufacturing, packaging, regulatory compliance, legal, all of those things. And so, there is wonderful synergies in having a company that is strong both on medical REC. and I think the Canadian quarter, this quarter is a great example. If you were just a REC business in Canada this quarter, you would have gotten hammered because of, you know, the overall macro environment. You know, medical didn't see that, um, what happened in REC. And lastly, I really believe that, you know, the first steps we're going to see in the U.S. is going to be medical, and I also think it's going to be at the federal level. I just don't see a scenario where the federal government is not going to have a piece of this taxation revenue. I don't see a scenario where the FDA says, this is the one category we're not gonna regulate. And with all due respect you know, to the MSOs, you have some really large multi-billion dollar global CBG companies that have made big bets that stand to gain from interstate commerce, highly regulated, all of those things. So I think medical doesn't get anywhere near the attention. It's not just because we do well at it, it's just all of those economics and it is growing and it is an important part of the REC story, whether it's today's synergies or tomorrow's new markets.
5: Miguel, I'd like to add just a couple of things to sure.
3: that. Sure.
4: You
5: know, about the medical thing. Just, just you're talking about market sizing. So, let's, um, Canada would say maybe 1% of the Canadian population are medical cannabis consumers. In Germany, it's one-tenth of that. It's one-tenth of 1% of German population are currently medical uh, uh, cannabis patients. And so as our leadership in Germany would tell you, there's 90% of the patients out there don't realize they're medical patients yet. And so it's our job is to go help them understand the benefits of uh, medical cannabis because, so you're talking about growth opportunities, just simply getting the same sort of penetration we've got in Canada, um, you know, we could tenfold um, opportunity there. But more importantly, and when we when we focus myopically on on revenue, we miss an important point. Sixty percent margins, and I'll just kind of reiterate that. I don't see anybody in our industry delivering sixty percent margins. So, uh, to me, sixty um, percent margin is worth twice uh, twice the consumer dollars that somebody operating at twenty or thirty percent in the consumer market. So, so we shouldn't lose sight of that. You know, it, it's it's a, a massive part of our business. I think the growth opportunities are excellent. I think the the ability to support a cash-generating business is excellent, and for all the reasons that Miguel said, it leads you into the future opportunities. So I I don't want to sort of leave it as a, a a poor cousin
3: to the rest of the business. It's an incredibly important part of the business. Thanks.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we have reached the end of the question and answer session, and I'd like to turn the call back to Mr. Miguel Martin for closing remarks.
4: Well, on behalf of all of us, we want to say thank you and um, all of your interest in Aurora. We look forward to delivering this plan, and I hope everyone uh, is safe and well, um, both you and your families. All the best. Thank you.
1: This concludes today's conference. You may disconnect your lines at this time. Thank you all for your
4: participation. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with Replacement Screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screens on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer
6: on menards.com. Save big
4: money at Menards.
0: Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.